From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode is Brian Whitlark, USGA Senior Consulting Agronomist in the West Region. And if you're a listener to this fine podcast, you will know Brian as a regular contributor from the Desert Southwest. My conversation with Brian includes discussion about overseeding desert golf courses and the role that pigments and paints might play in reducing overseed. Of course, applying those products requires a well-functioning and precise system, and that's where Frost Technologies comes in. Buying a sprayer just because of the color of the metal does not make sense anymore, especially if you're using GPS-guided systems. Frost Technologies specializes in spray technology, so they are your application experts regardless of the color of your metal. Learn more about this exciting technology at frostserve.com. That's frost, S-E-R-V, dot com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking, my favorite USGA guest. I know it's going to make other people sad, but you are, in fact, my favorite USGA guest. And I actually think it has to do with the mower article you did. I was like, wow, somebody was smart enough to pay attention to mowing <laughs> again at the USGA. And it happened to be you, Brian Whitlark. And I know, Brian, you're involved with the Organic Matter Project now. You're really, uh, the USGA Green Section has really been transformed under recent leadership. So be, yes. big kudos to all of you guys on the USGA staff, but you in particular, in the desert and with water, I wanted to take up those two topics. Let's start with overseeding. The overseeding typically happens, I think, somewhere in the middle to the end of October in an ideal world. How has the weather been? Because in the past, sometimes it gets 100 degrees in the Coachella Valley or down in Arizona or Vegas, right when they're overseeding. How did the overseeding weather go this year, Brian? So the weather is never normal. It's like when I talk to superintendents, like, oh, it wasn't normal this year. It's never normal. There's always some type of challenge during the overseed period, which is quite wide. Like in Vegas, where it gets cold early, you know, they're overseeding. I mean, some courses start overseeding at the end of August. And most are in mid-September. And then in Arizona, it's end of September through mid to even late October. And then in the Coachella Valley, it's kind of similar. It's mid-September, which is really too early. And then some overseed. Uh, one course just overseeded 10 days ago. Whoa. But in general, I would say the biggest challenge this year has been higher heat and humidity mm-hmm. during the overseed process. And as you know, humidity is like candy for Bermuda grass. Exactly. It just grows like crazy. So there was a lot of Bermuda grass competition for that new ryegrass. And you can only do so much. You know, you can spray turf on ester and growth regulators and do your best. But Bermuda grass, we all know it's mm-hmm. going to come back. You know, you only have so many fungicides in your arsenal to combat pythium. So in general, this year is definitely more challenging than last year. In fact, last year, was one of the more ideal mm-hmm. overseed windows as, as far as weather goes. And then we had some rain. So some guys had only had seed down for three or four days. And it, that seems to be kind of the window where the ryegrass is really at risk of moving with a rainfall event. And, you know, some guys had were spending $30,000, $40,000 on seed to reseed areas because seed washed away. And, and that's really tough because you, you've got this overseeding window of some only have 10 days, some have four or five weeks but you're limited to that window. Everyone's sort of ready to open the golf course. Mm -hmm. And if you have a rainfall event 
and it messes up that overseed window, it's tough to recover. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it got cold. Right. So we kind of go from this overseed season where it's hot and humid, and then boom, it gets cold. And now the ryegrass takes 13, 14 days to germinate. So you're kind of sitting on seed and the, you know, the birds are eating it. Well, at least it's holding back the Bermuda because it's cold. So let's take this apart. You gave me a lot to unpack here. Let's start with the weather. I have heard basically in the desert climates, golf courses will live and die by when those rains come in the fall right? Those monsoons that come through. They get that three-week snap of a little bit of rain and humidity that they always say is oppressive at 30%. Come up here in the summertime, and I'll tell you what (laughs) oppressive humidity feels like. So first off, it's been a couple of good years, I think, for growing good Bermuda grass. Is that correct? Yes and no. I mean, I'll say this, and this is a little bit different topic, but for those that have implemented this very proactive transition management strategy, Mm -hmm. it's been a home run. It's been really, really good. Those that still hang on to the ryegrass through end of May, early June, Mm -hmm. and then spray an SU to get rid of it, those courses are still struggling on the whole. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is the interconnectedness of this thing. So Beyond the weather, of certainly in the past, one would have said they prepared the surface much more aggressively, and now they describe what they do as low or soft preparation for the overseeding process. Right. That's a big shift, right? When you don't beat the heck out of the Bermuda like we used to 15, 20 years ago, then it has more likely to compete with the rye, but then maybe it doesn't transition as well at the other end. That was my initial thought. Is that an accurate assessment of what's happened in the last bunch of years? The preparation has changed, and and so Bermuda grass stays a little bit more competitive longer? Absolutely. I We don't have a lot of data to support those ideas, but I think those are probably accurate. One thing I do question is for those that still fairly aggressively prep, which means, you know, some vertical mowing, maybe one or two directions. Maybe they use a springtime rake to stand up the Bermuda grass, and then they're scalping at 275, 300. That's kind of on the more aggressive prep strategies now. But if there's humidity and you do all that, the Bermuda grass is sort of triggered to recover. So Mm -hmm. ultimately that probably hurts our transition. I almost think that that process creates more competition for the ryegrass. Mm. Frank, I don't have any data to support that. That's That's okay. We got a podcast nobody listens to, Brian. You don't have to worry. Nobody's listening to this. (laughs) (laughs) One course I just went to in Coachella Valley last week, they didn't do anything hardly to their roughs, Uh which is pretty typical. You know, maybe you scalp at three quarters of an inch and you call it good. You throw the seed, you turn the water on. Mm -hmm. And the roughs were gorgeous at a lower seed rate Mm -hmm. than the fairways. So Mm -hmm. the fairways, he had prepped a little bit more aggressively, not overly aggressive, but, you know, they they tried harder on the fairways and the fairways were thin. I mean, Mm -hmm. the Bermuda grass had already... The common, anyway, had already gone off color a little bit due to some frost. Ah. And the fairways were thin where where he didn't do anything in the roughs. The Bermuda grass hadn't competed as much with the ryegrass. So, I don't know. I'll capture that by saying I'm all in favor of a low-intensive preparation. Whether you mow at 400 and just throw the seed in the fairways and mow three-quarters of an inch 
and throw the seed in roughs or don't overseed roughs at all. But that strategy is successful. We don't need to verticut and scalp aggressively. That Those things need to be done in, in July and August. And goodness, it, I'll, I'll share one quick learning process that I've had. You know, when Pat Gross retired, I took over some of the Coastal California courses. And that's been really cool for me because I've learned a lot about how those, gro- those guys mm-hmm grow Bermuda grass. Yeah. I'll tell you, Frank, some of those courses that LACC, Bel Air, Burnham Wood, the Valley Club, their Bermuda grass fairways are beautiful, amazing. Yeah. They're better than any Bermuda grass fairways I see in the desert. Now they're not overseeded. They're different weather conditions, but they beat the snot out of the Bermuda grass <laughs> in July. Mm-hmm. They stand all that up, cut it off, and they're left with this, you know, really tight, upright surface that provides an amazing ball eye and, and ball roll. And winter playing service. And winter playing, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the way to do it. And that's where I see sort of the Bermuda grass triangle of Coachella Valley, mm-hmm. Southern Arizona, and Nevada. This water thing is a big deal, and mm-hmm. they're going to have to stop overseeding. Okay. I know, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Well, but. we're going to have ourselves. But you did bring up a point earlier about seed that I want to pick up. First off, before I go to seed, let me go back. You said you visited a place in the Coachella Valley and in their rough, they just lightly brought the the height of cut down and threw the seed. And even after a few frosts, the ryegrass was thriving out in the rough. And if there was Bermuda grass, it didn't go off color from the frosts. Is that what you're saying? Or was that rough really got all a catch of ryegrass that really wasn't, the Bermuda wasn't as competitive because it was a little bit higher. Yeah, the Bermuda grass wasn't as competitive and the ryegrass was denser despite Mm. a lower seed rate. I believe the seed rate, that golf course in the rust was 500 pounds to the acre. And I'm pretty sure it was 750 pounds to the acre in the fairways. In Coachella Valley, seed rates are generally higher than what we see in Arizona. 500, 550 is pretty common in fairways. And for a lot of courses in Arizona, they're not overseeding roughs, which is great. If they are, it's typically around 400, 450 pounds to the acre. Okay, so 200 pounds of seed maybe five years ago didn't seem like that much money. 200 pounds of seed nowadays is a lot more money than it was five years ago. And this stuff with the low seed rate, is it a bit motivated by seed costs, Brian? Absolutely. That's probably the number one motivation. There's some thought that the lower seed rate may help with transition. I don't necessarily agree with that. If you've Mm. got dense ryegrass in March and April, you can still have a very poor transition regardless of the seed rate. I mean, I've seen 350 pounds to the acre produce a dense ryegrass canopy in March and April Mm. and uh, potential for, for poor transition. So, but Yes, seed costs are definitely driving some of these decisions. Now, for a lot of the courses in Coachella Valley where they're expected to overseed wall to wall, it's a big investment. It's a quarter million dollars in seed for some of these golf courses. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And I guess, is the higher seed rate just a function of it gets denser quicker? Because I'm in agreement with you. When I go out and walk around, you can tell how it's going to transition by how thick that ryegrass is in the middle of February. That's when I think the sun starts to really get on the side, wants to be on the Bermuda grass side there. And if that ryegrass is dense there and it's still dense in March, April, and May, that shading that occurs in those two and a half months to me is the story. So why do the high seed rate? Rapid cover? 
You said it. it's for early density. In, in November and December, you look better if you put out 800 pounds versus 400 pounds. So for those that, I guess, demand high density and in, in early in the season, then that, and that's why you do it. But I don't know. I would argue I'd rather go at a ladder seed rate, throw some pigments and paint on there. Mm-hmm. Call it good. That's right. Okay. So this is the point. Lower seed rates are going to then potentially leave you with a little bit of Bermuda grass, right? Theoretically, yep. you know, you put these seed rates on, somebody's tested it, that you're going to be full ryegrass cover. That's presumably why we do the things that we do. Anytime as an Easterner or, you know, a Yankee, I've gone down to the South and I said, hey, you know, why? And they say, well, because the Bermuda grass is going to stay persistent. Then we're going to get a frost and it's going to look crappy. That's why I asked you about what happened in the rough on the, you know, virtually no prep, because that's always what I hear. Lower seed rate means the first frost I get, I'm going to see that Bermuda. But I just heard you say paints and pigments are going to help you with that. Absolutely. One superintendent, if you ain't painting, you ain't trying. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so funny to hear you say that because it used to be painting was a failure. You only painted if you couldn't grow grass. Oh, yeah, he's painting. He don't know how to grow grass. He's painting it. Yeah. Right? That used to be what I remember. Of course, I'm twice as old as you. So I remember when that was sort of not looked at in a popular way. So you're in agreement that the path to lower seed rates and maybe less water use could be smart use of pigments and paints in places where overseeding and high-quality expectations exist. Absolutely. Pigments first, and then once the Bermuda grass really goes off color, you know, switching to some paints or products with binders, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. But that works well. And then by end of February, everyone is good. You know, whether you put 800 pounds or 450, you kind of look about the same in, in February. Is traffic tolerance an issue with the lower seed rate? Because obviously the Bermuda is not growing at all. And if it does persist with the paints and pigments, I mean, it might be green, Brian, but I don't know if it's going to be growing. Do you see any potential traffic issues? Because, you know, traffic has gone up on these desert golf courses since the pandemic. No, that's a really good point, especially in Vegas, where, you know, sort of the coldest of the overseed market. And I guess that's why they overseed so early. But to your point, the ryegrass is important, especially if you're on common Bermuda grass, to absorb some of that traffic. And if you don't have a dense ryegrass stand, then you know, you're gonna have a poor plain surface if you don't get some ryegrass in there. Now these newer Bermuda grasses, they hold color longer, the traffic tolerance is better. So I don't think that's as big of a concern, but we're really on the, the low end of introducing those new and such. Okay. So ultimately that transition in the spring is a big deal. I think it's gotten to be at least a little bit. I've been visiting a couple of the deserts in the triangle over the last four or five years. The increase in expectations from their summer residents, the increasing number of summer residents and the increasing expectations of those residents is putting a greater premium, Brian, on transition quality. Now, I know in the past you and I have talked about, what did you call this, the perennial ryegrass management system, the PRM, (laughs) the PRMS or something? Um, Every decision they're making from even when they overseed and sustain play through the winter, many of them nowadays, much more than they used to, are thinking about the transition because of the pressure they're getting in the summer. How much does this increased summer play expectation pressure 
complicate the whole matter. So I did a visit in the Coachella Valley this summer at a course that, that I won't name, but I never thought in a million years that this golf course would be interested in summer conditions. Like everyone left. The place was a ghost town for the summer. And sure enough, the superintendent GM called me in to talk about this transition program because they had some members that were complaining about summer conditions. So it's important for all of the markets, Coachella, Vegas, and Arizona. And I would say that this ryegrass management system program, it's evolved to where Courses are starting in February, third or fourth week of February, beginning to apply herbicides at light rates. Panoxylum is probably the favorite. And just using that to slowly regulate the ryegrass and therefore encourage the understory Bermuda grass. And I think what we find is you can do that without impacting aesthetics. You can do that without having to reduce you know, uh, green fees. You can do it basically without the golfers even knowing that you're going through this program. That's the key. It's worked really well. Yeah. That transparency to the golfer is key, Brian. All right, listen, let's take a break. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. I'm with Brian Whitlark, the senior consulting agronomist in the West region for the United States Golf Association and a frequent guest on this program. Uh, We'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. As we are learning, water management is a major concern for golf course superintendents in the arid regions of the U.S., especially the desert southwest. Supplemental products with proven performance in these regions, based on university research at places like UC Riverside, are worth a look. When you look for the research, you will see that the plant food company products are performing well in the toughest conditions. Learn more about improving water management and stress tolerance from your local plant food rep or at plantfoodco.com. Getting the most out of your playing surfaces, especially when you need it most, requires a high-functioning sand-based system. Managing monitored sand-based systems requires the use of sand amendments, plus aeration and top dressing. Dryject does all three of those practices at once. And the sand you use can even be wet. Contact your local Dryject representative for more information or visit dryject.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm with Brian Whitlark, Senior Consulting Agronomist for the West Region of the United States Golf Association. And the USGA has been a leader out West. Uh, I remember the Wastewater Summit many, many years ago. They did right after Ted Horton did that recycled water project with the Pebble Beach Corporation and Ali Haravandi mm. was really involved. So the, you know, the involvement of the USGA in water is, is nothing new. And I was on the research committee for a couple of years. It certainly is, even when no one was talking about it, a driving force <laughs> Uh, of research because it takes a long time to sort of solve these big problems when an industry becomes dependent on a particular resource, you know, like the auto industry needs some sort of energy. We need water to do it. Brian, you were involved in this Southern California Golf and Water Summit that was uh, put together, I think it was in August or September. I wonder, let's start with first off, you know, what was this about? And overall, what was your goal in your mind in sort of bringing the, all these folks together uh, for this particular summit? And then we'll start to take apart some of the stuff that got discussed there. 
Yeah, so this first water summit, it was really well attended. We had 220 folks in attendance. And I would say the overarching goal was to bring all of the uh, water conservation strategies to light in front of an audience of regulators. So the primary audience for that meeting was the water purveyors, the water regulators in Southern California. And they played a big role in this meeting. They gave some presentations on how water moves throughout Southern California and talked about their projects moving forward, a lot of which was to improve the infrastructure in Southern California, including plumbing water from reclaimed water plants to golf courses and that sort of thing, which is, uh, as you can imagine, is very costly, but it's an important strategy for golf courses to save potable and groundwater and switch into mm -hmm. to, uh, reclaimed water. Okay, that's perfect. Let me ask a couple of clarifying questions about the audience and, you know, how this might work other places. So water purveyors and regulators, are any of those people elected officials? Yes, Yes. Many of them. Okay, many yes. of them. So out there, yeah. the people who are involved with determining how water gets distributed are often elected. Now, when I had the huckster on uh, this summer talking mm. about water, well, he had a saying, it's first in rights or first in, mm, if you're, yes. you know, a lot of these rights to water are predetermined, that these people might have some say over it, but the way the water gets allocated is predetermined. Are these the people who determine it, or is it determined by when you own the land and how you have rights to the water? I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer that, but the regulators, they source their water from different sources, whether mm -hmm. it's Northern California, groundwater, reclaimed water, and then they're delivering that water to golf courses and based on state and in the future, some federal demands on water. It's very regional, but they've been imposing restrictions then on golf courses, okay. you know, maybe 15, 20 percent. But many courses in Southern California were under some form of restrictions this year. Yeah. And again, you mentioned what I was getting at here. Is this a regional thing? In other words, you did it in Southern California. Vegas needs to do one. And probably the desert southwest, Phoenix needs to do some. Is that how this is going to have to be? Yeah, so we have a summit planned December 7th in Northern California, and that will be a little bit different meeting where the audience will be more golf facilities, golf course owners, GMs, golf course superintendents. And then we have one in the works of planning January 11th in Coachella Valley. And again, Craig Kessler from Southern California Golf Association has been a big part of putting that meeting together. In that meeting, the audience, again, will be golf facilities. And then, we yes, we've heard from Southern Nevada Water Authority and Southern Nevada Golf Course Superintendents Association that we want to do a, a summit there in, in Phoenix. So it's been really popular, and, and obviously with the Colorado River in such dire mm -hmm. straits, there's a lot of discussions about what we're going to do in the next 10, 15 years as far as water, because even California is going to have to take some reductions on the Colorado River water allocation. Okay. So it sounds like it started out, like you said, this person from the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California talked a little bit about maybe how water works through the system. I mean, I'm sure there were some golf people there, some golf course superintendents. I know Jim Baird was there. Academics were there. Is it a surprise to learn about the way water works out there? Or is it really known by all the golf course superintendents the way the water works out there? Mm, it was new to me. And, and I think some of the superintendents I talked to, they just appreciated the transparency of the meeting and learning 
you know, how these regulators source all their water and their challenges. You know, the golf courses, we often think, well, they think of their own challenges, pumping groundwater or getting reclaimed water, whatever source they're trying to get a hold of. But hearing it from the regulators, the challenges that they have trying to source water from Northern California, which is a big part of their water supply, and then producing enough reclaimed water to supply users. And then, and again, that's where their federal dollars are going to be going in the, in the future is what they mentioned was uh, the infrastructure surrounding reclaimed water and a little bit on desalination. Mm. Um, and I know Arizona has been discussing a desal plant in Mexico to exchange some water rights. Yeah, I'm mixed about, you know, I know we we rely on recycled water and desalinization, but when I start to think about them and I think about energy costs and fossil fuels and hopefully they're connected to a solar operation because those, the greenhouse gas emissions associated with that water use uh, is not minimal. I don't think it's entirely known, Brian, but it's not minimal. Now, listen, Here's where I want the two sections to intersect. Brian Unruh stood up and talked about how the median water use in the Southwest, overall water use has gone down, but the median water use has gone up a little bit from 3.4 to 4.2 in 2020. I guess I'm going to put you on a spot a little bit, ask you, you know, is 4.2 more than we need? And back to the overseeding discussion earlier, if you don't overseed, you're still using some water. When we have this summit and you have a person like Brian come in and talk about the actual data, you see that median water use is going up. You know we're struggling uh, with the overseeding question. In your mind, you must, for these three regions, have a sense of, okay, this is the amount of water I think they need. This is what I think, you know, we could be living with. These are the adaptations we're going to have to make if the numbers get lower than that. Because that's the conversation, ultimately. If restrictions are coming, what are the adaptations we're going to make? So first off, let's start with this. Why has the median water use gone up? Hmm. I don't know the answer to that, but you're right. So per acre, water use has gone up a little bit. About seven-tenths of an acre foot, looks like. Yeah. So a big part of that is how courses even report their water. You know, if they're using their pump station, it's not the most accurate way to report their water use. So that honestly, statistically, that may not even have seen an increase in, in water. We're okay. All we're right. doing a project in Arizona where we're using a, a third party to collect acreage, an accurate representation of mm-hmm. irrigated turf grass acreage mm-hmm. in Arizona right now with the Arizona Alliance for Golf. And just getting accurate data, that's a big part of this project to share this information with the Arizona Department of Water Resources is, all right, here's an accurate representation of how many acres that we irrigate. And then with water meters, uh, we can more accurately tell a story of how much water we're using per acre. Some of that is just inaccurate information, I'm afraid. Like the Arizona Department of Water Resources, they have all these records of turf grass acreage, but much of it is inaccurate, and we're trying to overcome okay. that with this project. Well, and the Deacon system you guys offer that we've been working with here can yeah. give you accurate. I mean, that's one of the benefits of getting that system is it really gives you, it maps the whole golf course, or at least gives you the ability to do it very accurately. But it does lead me to another question about amount of turf and the amount of water we use. I mean, if I was a regulator and I was like, and I looked at this and I didn't know the nuance 
that you just mentioned that maybe this isn't the cleanest data. Maybe this is within the variability that you get in collecting this data, the seven-tenths of a difference in, in acre feet. Mm-hmm. But it does say, well, let's just cut down the amount of turf. Now, you and I have talked about this in the past. Do we still have a lot more turf removal to do on golf courses in these areas? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> well, what are we big, waiting for? For the price of it to go up? <laughs> Yeah, it's expensive to remove turf. And then what do you plant after you've taken it out? But when you go to Scottsdale, the average golf course is about 65 acres of irrigated turf. When you go to the Coachella Valley, it's high. You know, it's 110, maybe 120 acres of irrigated turf. In southern Nevada, they've done a nice job of removing turf. But I don't know if you've heard this, but the Southern Nevada Water Authority is going to change the allotment from 6.3 acre feet per acre to four acre feet per acre. You can't overseed at four acre feet per acre. There's no way, not in Las Vegas. And I'm not even sure we can grow Bermuda grass at four acre feet per acre, to be quite honest. Wow. Yeah, that's a big deal. And you say they're already pretty close to what Arizona is in getting their acreage down. So they're not going to get out of this by just taking out turf. No, they kind of used a strange way to calculate it. They kind of used historical acreage. And so if you had 110 acres of irrigated turf and now you have 90, your allocation is based on that original acreage, which is a bit confusing to me. Mm-hmm. So a course that is a new golf course that did the right thing. They built 80 acres of turf. Well, now they don't have that fudge factor involved. So, you know, they're going from 6.3 to 4 acre feet per acre on 80 acres. Well, they're in a real bind, that golf course. They can't overseed Mm -hmm. anymore. They have to change grasses. They probably have to change to Tiff Tough or Tahoma 31 or one of these new varieties from Dr. Baird's uh, program out of UC Riverside. So they have to have all that expense. They may need to upgrade the irrigation system. Some big changes that are coming for some of these facilities in in southern Nevada. Hmm. And you're saying that the four acre feet is not even enough to grow a certain amount of Bermuda grass in the desert. It's really tight. I mean, I, the, the consumptive use for just the ET alone, don't quote me on this, it's about four and a half acre feet per acre. And that doesn't include irrigation non-uniformity. Wow. You know, so <laughs> if we include that, which you have to. Yes. We're probably up to 5.1, 5.2 acre feet per acre in southern Nevada. The ETs are higher there, I, although they're a little bit cooler. They're windier and drier. Mm-hmm. So the, I mean, the overseeded requirement in southern Nevada is about seven acre feet per acre. Oh. Honestly, oh, so trying to grow Bermuda grass year round at four is really tight. So they're going to need to remove turf, change grasses. And some other strategies, we're looking at soil moisture sensors, Mm -hmm. we're looking at drip irrigation. Okay, I noticed in your, I actually watched your presentation, they're online, anybody can see it through the Green Section Record uh, article that was published back in September, and you talked about how upgrading an irrigation system has an expected life, and when you do it, you could theoretically improve 60% 60% efficiency to 80% efficiency. And you know, you know, mid-80s in many ways is the gold standard before you said anything about wind and I get Huck right. talking about nozzles, you know, how we can go that next level. But in general, that mid-80s is a number. 
What then is stopping us from trying more drip, uh, at least on T-tops? We did it in Martha's Vineyard where we wanted to stop fugitive water from going into the rough and getting weeds growing. I don't know if that's as big of a problem in the desert uh, as it is, you know, in the humid, wet northeast. What is stopping some of these major adaptations like drips or like, you know, either widespread soil moisture meters or model water use? You can, you know, if you take enough sensor measurements, Brian, we've got machine learning. You could pretty much predict the soil moisture across that property. We're getting there. What's stopping it is that we still have more water than we need. Two big topics you hit on there, the drip and the in-ground soil moisture sensor stuff. Without a doubt, drip has been a home run in teen grounds. It's a no-brainer. It's, they're pretty easy to install. It's not that expensive. And the savings is huge. I mean, it's 50 to 80% mm-hmm. savings compared to overhead irrigation. And you eliminate that unnecessary, unwanted vegetation growth, mm-hmm. weeds and such around the teen grounds. Yeah. To me, that's an easy button. Where it becomes more complicated is to upscale that to fairways, roughs. So who knows, but we are looking at that. We have a couple golf courses that have agreed to install drip irrigation in one or two fairways at Mm. their property. Mm. So we're in the planning phases of that right now. There is a golf course in Morgan Hill, California called the Institute that has drip irrigation in two of their fairways and have had for about six years And the savings are significant. Yeah, and it's a challenge in undulating ground. That's teen ground's good because it's flat, right? But when you start dripping, you start to get that lateral flow of water if you don't engineer the soil properly to, you know, do the wicking it needs to do, right? That's what makes teen ground ideal and makes sloped ground more challenging. But listen, we got a lot of smart people. (laughs) <laughs> studying this thing, if yeah, we put we our minds to out, it, right? right? I, I just really feel like this is something we just haven't leaned into, but it could get solved. Now, let's leave the drip there. What's the yeah. hot button around the sensors? So um, a couple of years ago, I tried to start a study with about 20 golf courses using in-ground soil moisture sensors, mm-hmm. and it sort of fizzed a little bit, but we had a few adopters and those continue to use the soil moisture sensors. But Frank, the big leap is you put these sensors in and the idea is to use that information every day to make decisions on pushing the buttons Mm -hmm. to turn the water on or not. Mm -hmm. But many haven't made that leap. Like they use the data, they look at the data occasionally, but to use it rather than use ET to make irrigation decisions, that's where we need to go. Now, there are a couple. Uh, Tyler Truman is one that really stands out in, in Coachella Valley. He's done an amazing job of using the turf guard sensors to, well, first he mapped the golf course to place the sensors, and now he's using that data to make irrigation decisions. Matt Muhlenbrook at, at Hillcrest mm-hmm. in uh, Southern California has, has also made that leap. My buddy Rob Collins at Paradise Valley Country Club, mm-hmm. he started using the in-ground sensors. And then we started using the POGO mm-hmm. handheld meter to map fairways. And we use that information to decide where to place the in-ground sensors, right? But Rob really found that um, he really liked the POGO data. He was all in 
because he was able to take a lot more readings, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, 70, 80, 90 mm -hmm. per fairway. And now he's gone all in and he's mapping about 10 acres per day at his golf course using the Pogo mm -hmm. meter and using that information every single day mm -hmm. to make individual sprinkler adjustments. Yeah, and that's exactly what Chase Straw at A&M has been promoting, and we talked about on this fine podcast this past summer. The exact thing that Rob is doing is the path to more efficient water use. All right, listen, I've kept you for too yep. long, and I want to be respectful of that time that you have, all the people you have to serve there in the desert southwest but this particular audience of water purveyors and regulators, right? You brought all these people together. You had Jim Baird talk a little bit. You had a bunch of superintendents talk. I was very keen on this. I, I think this is a really important bellwether for the way our industry is going to address water use uh, moving forward. That's why I, you know, I wanted to have you on and have this conversation. The question I got for you is, how did it resonate with the people who make those decisions? Do they like, well, that was nice, but, you know, farmers give me a harder time. So what do you think? Uh, how did it resonate well, with I, the audience? Everyone, we had some nice surveys done afterwards, and um, they were all extremely positive. I think everyone appreciated the collaboration and transparency in the room. No one was there to be defensive. No one was there to hide anything. Everyone just, just, just lay it on the table. Let's get it all out in front of us at this meeting and let's continue to have these discussions. So there was a lot of good networking that went on there that, you know, first opportunity really for some of, you know, the facilities, the superintendents and general managers, golf course owners to uh, interact with these water purveyors and establish relationships. Honestly, it's probably one of the best meetings that I attended mm. in my 15 years with the USGA. Wow. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. That's, we go to a lot of meetings. <laughs> we, of course, we go to a lot of bad meetings too, but, but we go to a lot of meetings. Um, are you as hopeful now as you go to these other places? I mean, you know, the California thing obviously set the bar pretty high, but you've already said that the Vegas folks have just decided unilaterally, well, this is what you get and like it or lump it to a certain extent. Are you as hopeful in those other regions that you're going to have the same sort of, you know, networking and, and building a relationship? So in California and in Arizona, I think the amount of collaboration has been very good between representatives of the golf industry and the regulators. In Nevada, which was surprised, the decision to go to four acre feet per acre was surprising to me. And I think mm. it surprised a lot of superintendents as well. Mm. There's some work to do there. It hasn't gone into law yet. I know uh, Jeff Jensen and GCSAA are, you know, they're all working to, um, you know, make things work as best as possible there. And I'm, and I'll be involved as much as I can. That's the one I'm most concerned about is four acre feet per acre. If you've got 80 acres of turf, it's a tough go. Well, I, I just think at the end of the day, that part of the country is really lucky to have you as sort of coordinating in the USGA, sort of coordinating some of these things because, you know, Jim Baird is one academic, right? And he's got a team of really good scientists that he works with, yeah. right? And the GCSA has, you know, got a guy, right? You know, we don't really have anybody in Northern California anymore. There's, I don't think anybody studying turf at the University of Nevada is... Has anybody replaced nope. Copec in Arizona? I mean, 
I know there's no. some new USDA people that you've been working with down in Arizona, either breeding or, or just understanding water use a, a little bit better. So that's a, a bright light. But, you know, as a researcher, I'm a little worried that, you know, we're already behind on this. If we're moving to aggressive stuff, lowering these rates, the science isn't going to be there necessarily to help the industry. So I'm a little worried. We're a little short on research. Is there any discussion about more research, not just you guys, but maybe at the, in the academic realm? We don't necessarily need turf people. You know, we need people who, you know, understand how soils and plants work and they can adapt their skills to what we want. Is there hope? There's discussions about hiring a replacement for Dr. Kopak and Paul Brown. Unfortunately, Kai Amata just retired. Mm-hmm. I mean, fortunate for him. I know he's he's loving life now, <laughs> but uh, we really miss Kai. Mm-hmm. And uh, you said it, you know, Dr. Baird, uh, another Dr. Pretty, uh, I'm blanking her last name, at, at Cal Poly. Mm-hmm. She's done some work uh, at her program with some uh, soil moisture sensing Excellent. studies. So I don't, I don't want to leave her out and her program out. But you're right, it's it's limited, and you said we're behind, and you're right, especially with the turf grass breeding. As you know, it takes a long, long time. time. UCR Group is about to release two cultivars. It may be 24, like 2024, before they get released, but there's some progress being made. But if we're going to find a grass that stays green and grows in southern Nevada year-round, uh, man, I, we're, we're a long ways away from that mm-hmm. with Bermuda grass. Now, we're looking at some zoysia, Frank, mm-hmm. uh, which has been interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm cautiously optimistic about some of these new stadium zoysia grass has been performing quite well mm-hmm. at a few uh, locations. But to get back to your original question about researchers, I think it's really going to be up to the golf course superintendents incumbent upon them to do some of the research themselves. And guys like Greg Neindorf at Shadow mm-hmm. Creek, Rob Collins in, in Arizona, and Curtis Tyrell at Desert Highlands. Those are the guys that are been willing to adopt these new technologies and do some of their own research because you're right. We don't have the capacity. Jim right. Bear is only one one guy. His program is killing it. I yeah. mean, he's getting all going all yeah. over. Yeah. But we're going to really re- have to rely on the superintendents to try these new grasses and strategies and see if we can save 20, 30% water. Well, I'll get you out of here on this. You, you just hired a really good expert in Mateo to uh, join the USGA green section. So congratulations on a great hire, particularly in this area. He's got a wealth of expertise. I think he's going to be a great addition to the team. Brian, thanks so much for taking the time to join me. Brian Whitlark is the senior consulting agronomist for the West region of the United States golf association. Brian, I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. Thanks a lot. You too, Frank. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Big thanks to Brian Whitlark from the USGA. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at DryJack, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, the plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability, and Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Block Talk Radio, Apple Podcast, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.